There's a place some of us go each fall. A place where the ring of a bell filters through the covers and hurried shouts of bird up bring everybody to attention. A place where the playful puppies around our house are transformed here to driven bird finders. And where there is confidence in the slow pace of the silver-muzzled old veterans. Where our friends tell the same old stories each year, and none of us seem to mind. Where great shots are forgotten, and epic misses never fade. Where an old gun will have a story to tell, if only it could speak to us. Where all the good seats are claimed by the dogs. If you have a camp, you know these things all too well. If you don't, well, you're always welcome here. So pull up a chair, tell us about your favorite gunner dog, and we'll admire the birds together and talk the night away by the fire. Welcome to Bird Camp. Before we begin this episode, I'd of course like to thank the Patreon patrons. And uh, Nate, thank you for becoming a new Patreon patron. And I appreciate the support uh, from the patrons there uh, for the podcast. That a couple of dollars each from each of you is, uh, it makes a difference. And uh, I do appreciate it. Thank you, Tim, as well. Another shout out uh, for the nice gift and the correspondence and the Christmas card. And uh, soon I will be trying that new sweet and sour sauce recipe you sent me. And uh, looking forward to it going to try to be a little more prepared this coming season. This is the last episode of season three, and we'll begin season four. I'm already kind of taking some notes and lining up a few guests so that I at least feel a little more prepared for this one. And as well, uh, thank you for the feedback from some others. I am following up on those leads uh, for some new guests. It seems like I have a number of French dog handlers, owners, breeders, and so, yeah, it'll be something neat to, to listen to again. Of course, we can focus in on those hunting conversations. Um, but keep the feedback and the, the correspondence coming, and I do appreciate it. To get a hold of me, easiest way is email, mi.birdcamp at gmail.com, or right on BirdCamp on the Facebook, uh, which I'm on there often enough, but as well, if you want to support the podcast, but you don't want to throw me a few bucks, that's cool. How about uh, like, share, rate, review, subscribe, uh, tell a friend, uh, recommend something that you found good, or tell me where you think I should be improving. But uh, those are all some things coming up, and uh, I'll let this last episode speak for itself. This is kind of a Michigan-based podcast, and this is a Michigan pheasant hunter, and so... I'll be recording with him here in a few moments, and I will pass this all right on to you shortly. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Bird Camp Podcast. I am your host, Joe Schwenke, and I am with Jonathan Moore today. Jonathan is a Michigan bird hunter, both grouse and pheasants, and we're going to talk a lot about the pheasant side of things. And I was able to join him about the Christmas time on a hunt over in eastern Michigan, southeast area there. And, uh, well, we'll lead right into it. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. 
Now, this is kind of like having you on again, isn't it? Because we were recording in the cab of a truck outside of Big Boy, and uh, we didn't have notes. And it didn't, it was a good talk. I, I liked it, but uh, I would have had to have edited it with a machete, maybe. Uh, we kind of went in a few circles here and there, and, and I wanted to clean it up. So I listened to it, I took some notes, and now uh, we're back at it with a clear frame of mind, and we'll see what we can do. Um, but let's talk first of all right away. It was Christmas. We were in, in Michigan on public land, and, uh, and we saw a lot of birds. Yeah, yeah, we had a, man, they had a real good year this year. I think we, one guy ended up with a rooster out of that group, but it wasn't the only rooster we seen. We seen multiple roosters, just didn't have real good opportunities. And mm -hmm. uh, that's late season hunting for you. But, man, we moved a bunch of hens. I, I got to say 20 plus on the hen side of things that day. Yeah, I was thinking about 25 hens. Uh, there were some in flocks. There were some then singles. It was, uh. There was no lack of action anywhere in there, and this was two weeks before the season closes. You know, this is this is well into the the shooting season, so that that was a very encouraging sign there. Now, it that was with four guys. We made a lot of noise too to see that many birds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you've seen how them birds were running. They, you know, the roosters would run a quarter mile on you before they even take flight to the air. So, yeah. Um, I like they couldn't get out of the way, and we were still seeing them. So who knows what got by us on that day? Yep. Yeah, we weren't uh, we weren't always uniform lines or anything else. So I'm, I'm sure there no. were <laughs> gaps to get around us. If you remember the one time you heard me say, "There's bird tracks, there's dog tracks, and there's rob tracks. Come this way." <laughs> right. <laughs> you were an Indian scout at that point. I think we mentioned that before. Yep. But yeah. uh, and then we didn't hear a whole lot of shooting at the time. We were seeing the tracks laid on top of each other there, but. Part of that too, we had a fresh layer of snow, right? We were yeah, able to see tracks. Actually, great, great conditions for late season hunting. You get a little bit of snow, you can see tracks. Uh, I think we covered a little bit on the last time on, on how you can kind of tell a rooster and a hen track apart on the pheasants. So, mm -hmm. size wise, if, if you get a rooster and a hen together, you, you'll notice a rooster is almost double the size as a hen's track. So, with with some pretty good, you can get a pretty good guess if you're chasing after a rooster or a hen when, when you're tracking them in the snow like that. Yep. Yeah, and that was uh, it was good. The the dogs did well. I I wasn't no, I wasn't really sure what to expect even there, of course. So we get into these spots, and I'm glad I I didn't have a gun, so I was always walking behind people, which was good because you think grassland, you think easy walking. This was more like just crackly brush. It was all still grassland, but it felt more like rabbit hunting in some of those areas just because it didn't feel like grass about 100 paces in. Yeah, yeah, especially in them Phragmites, and Phragmites <laughs> really, really put a hurting on your walking. Yep, yep, and anytime anything had tipped over, there was some other sort of weed that tipped over about two feet in the air. And to bust through that, I ended up letting letting the guy with the gun next to me break trail. I'll just carry my camera and walk. But, uh, you know, that's one of those things, though, too, we get into it with, with habitat. It's hard for us to get through it. It's hard for anything to get to those birds, right? You know, a lot of hen survival comes from, from good grass and good cover. If we were struggling just to simply get from one place to the next, that's got to be good for the birds. 
Yeah, I mean, think about it. You, you look at that cover, and if you were to try to look at it from the sky as a, as a hawk or any, any type of predator bird, per se, I don't really think they could get down through it to get, their, get a hold of a hen down in there. Mm -hmm. um, I think really in that area, the only real predators they have out there would be uh, coyotes, fox, obviously, but uh, small predators eating eggs. Other than that, they're, they're in pretty safe condition in that area. Yeah. Yep. And then, and this is of course, public land. It was, we'll get into a little bit too. As I was driving East, there got to a certain point where I hit some major landmarks and got into the area where I knew that we would still have, still have birds in the state. And I noticed a drastic shift really in agriculture. Now we had kind of said, maybe it was a little circumstantial. I'm used to the West side agriculture where everything is a pivot drained ditch to ditch the first thing I saw was that the fields were a third of the size I was used to, that ditches and stream beds had fairly nice size easements, right? A stream might only be a trickle of water in a ditch, but it was still 10 yards worth of grass um, and almost nothing for fall tillage. But really what stood out was even though it looked really prime in that farmland, the state land looked incredible. By far the thickest cover was our state land. Yeah, and, you know, that that area there is wetland, so you can't touch it for anything. But uh, everything around it is a lot to do with Al Stewart pushing the, what was it, the MPHI? MPRI. MPRI, yes. Yep, the Restoration Initiative. Restoration Initiative. So when he pushed that, he got a lot of the area to get little crps that you see going down the sides of ditches and stuff like mm -hmm. that and that worked obviously that's why there's birds in that area of the state because it works yeah um and maybe maybe so i would compare say iowa if you ever go out and pheasant hunt iowa everywhere you go every every water line every fence row you got a a 20 yard wide fence row of grass not 20 yards of trees like we have now, you know, say in the 70s when everybody had cattle, every, everything like that, you didn't have big monster tree rows. They they had fence rows and it was beads around the fence rows and short brush shrubs and grass, right? Yeah. Well, so they that was, had that type of habitat. That was 50 years ago, right? So what was a small shrub and a small tree in the 70s is now a 50-year-old oak tree. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Totally different scenario. All it took was time and not doing anything with it. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Back, back then, the farmers, you know, they didn't have monster equipment. They got in tight to their edges of their fence rows, and they had grass, and, and they had fences for cattle. You know, yep. fence, row, fence rows became there because fences were put there. Yep. And uh, I'm a firm believer. I, I preach this to you, too. I'm a firm believer cattle's, cattle's where the birds are find cattle you'll find birds yep and they they do say that grazing affects grass in, in good ways and you know i'm going to trust the biologists on that one but it does make sense that you get that you know essentially those cattle come through and and do graze that down and i suppose keeps a diversity in the grass as well but uh yeah it for for more than a few reasons i'm going to I'm going to stick with those biologists that say that, you know, that rotational grazing and growing um, benefits everything. And, you know, it's, it's a good thing that we have that over there. I know on, on my side of the state, we don't really see much of all, 
all of those things anymore. It's it's big money farming, um, and that affects our birds too. But uh, again, I, I, I got to go back to it, right? We we flushed what we thought was at least two dozen hens over. We only hunted what six hours. Yeah. Yep. Yep. About six hours. We flushed a lot of hens, and where we had three dogs down all day, right? I ran one dog. Rob ran two dogs all day long. So. Yep. Yep. And it became the classic scenario in there as we're just kind of going over that first hunt. Long, long swale. It was it was a dry swale because of the drought. Usually you'd said it had water in it. And we get to the end of this cover and everyone's kind of tired and we hadn't seen a bird in a little while. And that's when the rooster surprises us in gun range. And uh, <laughs> it, it never fails, right? I don't know if anyone was ready. I didn't, I didn't even shoot. The other two guys shot. Rob hit it. Uh, I think Matt got a piece of it, too, maybe. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Close close so enough to we, change its flight, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, what we, we searched for 15 minutes to find that down bird. And... <laughs> there's, there's a flat spot in that SGA about 10 feet wide where it's got to be right here. It was hit hard. And meanwhile, of course, there's more than one story of, of us out hunting me and some other guys more than a few times why is my dog running over there the bird's dead right, right. here you know and why is flash on point 100 yards that way right so he, he probably calls that dog back off that bird's track again come brings him back in no i, I don't want to be here so eventually we give up next thing you know why in the world is flash down by the road way in the corner of this property i better go get him and he comes back with tail feathers out of his vest. But, that had to be 300 yards away from where that bird hit the ground. Yep. And it's, you know, an old an old dog, too. There's got to be something said about that. They they get an experience. Speaking of old dogs, there's one over going to make noise when he drops that stainless dish on the ground. But, uh, in fact, that one was out today. Even a pen bird did some running on us. And uh, the... the experience of a veteran dog sure comes into play on those but uh yeah 300 yards later rob comes back with a with a rooster in his vest a grin on his face shaking his head why he didn't trust his dog that wasn't going to leave that that pile of fragmites in the corner well you know why he's not leaving yeah yeah but uh kind of going over what we saw in there depending on what people see in the cover, kind of recreate a good description of what we were in because I'm not familiar with what some of those, those plants were. It didn't look like what I thought I was going to be looking for for pheasants, right? When you think grass, you think, well, like those Iowa easements that's mostly grass. We were in something that doesn't look like Iowa. Can you kind of describe a few of the things there? What makes that one look different? You know, it's not it's not switchgrass. There's a lot of like uh, goldenrod type stuff, and I the, the stuff I was showing you, the pens really bed under. I don't even know the name of that grass, but it's mm -hmm. a real like sticky grass, like you're saying, almost like a brush grass. It's and it's not even a grass. I would say it's a brush weed, mm -hmm. and it gets four or five feet tall. It's it's tall yep. and it's terrible to walk through, but and when it tips the, when over. The snow lays it, yep, when the snow lays it down, it makes awesome nesting underneath it. 
They, that's yep. where they're at. And you've seen the, the burrs when you get by the, the uh, what I call cackle burrs. Yeah. When you got by them, you've seen where the pheasants would get them all clumped together and make a nest out of the burrs, too. They really like them them burrs out there. I don't know. I, that's the only field I've ever seen that in, and they do it all the time. Yep. They'll, they'll actually pick the burrs off the burr bush, clump them together to make their nest out of the burrs. Hmm. No, I hadn't seen that before. And it was... You know, we we mentioned phragmites already. When I went looking for birds before, and of course I, I was always a woodcock hunter and a grouse hunter. I didn't really know anything about pheasants. I listened to people. My first encounter with a Michigan pheasant was in the, the December season, and I ended up just listening to people who did it. He kept hearing the words cattails over and over and over again. And there weren't many cattails in where we were today, but I found him in that cover that was cattails the other couple of years ago. And of course now it's December, there's snow, it's cold. The rule of thumb kind of is where do I stay warm, stay hid and stay alive? This time it turned out to be in the phragmites, you know, those same things. And then all those tipped down weeds that made those nice little hollows under there. You're out of the wind. There's no hawks going to see you under all that. Everything worked out good but you know they say phragmites came over on a ship from what asia right mm -hmm. that same place same place pheasants came from so maybe they go two and two together i don't know but yeah uh, i really I, honestly that's where you find them at you find them in the phragmites or in the cattails if you can find cattails but you know and and back in the 80s when you could bird hunt and even the early 90s when i started bird hunting you could uh you could find cattails a lot more than you could find phragmites in Michigan. And yep. now it's the total, total opposite, at least in this area. Yep. Yep. And this was a unique cover where, you know, in, in grouse hunting and things, we look for those transition edges. There was no monopoly on the ground around here when it came to what we saw, right? The There was, there was transition, right? Those phragmites were anywhere from 6 to 10 feet high in those low spots, there was goldenrod patches. There was that spots where more like the, the blue stem had been knocked down and provided that, that underground area there. And it was just back and forth, this patchwork. So there was no monoculture uh, in those grass, right? So there was, there was seeds everywhere still. There was lots of food around. And there was this huge diversity. So as you looked at the property, too, that's something to maybe keep in mind is... It wasn't just brome. It wasn't just blue stem. Depending on the weather, that bird could have went into anything it wanted that suited its needs best. Absolutely. And it's surrounded by crop fields, too. You know, all, all that around there is crop fields on the outside of it. So they got they got plenty of places to go feed. They got places to nest. As we were talking about uh, the owls that I find in them fields, same, yeah. same thing. Some reason owls like to nest in that field because of how heavy of a cover it is. I move crazy amount of owls out of them fields with bird dogs. Yep, and piles of mice. There were always mice underfoot. Um, yeah. Ben, too, when you mentioned the crop fields near the state land, the lack of fall tillage this year, which you said might be kind of an anomaly sometimes, but at the same time, around over here, everything is bare dirt. They've They've tilled it up twice already. Over there, everything was still stubble. The wheat was still stubble. You know, it's sat there for a few months now without a disc hitting it. And that just means that there's more scratch grain. 
and everything else those birds are going to need. So we're giving them on the state land. We're getting some great cover. Meanwhile, 50 yards away is an unplowed cornfield or wheat field that still provides nourishment through what's now going to be the harshest point, January and February. Yeah, yep. And uh, up there, they, like you said, there's there's so much food up there for them that I think they really do well in the wintertime. They don't, they don't get hammered by snow like further north our grouse population and stuff has to deal with, you know. But they, it's pretty much a good, all-around good scenario for pheasants in that area, just like you would see in another state that is known as a pheasant state. Yep. Um, so, so you're so you're saying too, like like known pheasant states, we're not really known for it, but we have them here, and uh, and it didn't, it took a lot, but we we got into a question here, and I know we're gonna race through my notes if I don't kind of try to flesh out some of these these things a little more, but there were we had four of us out hunting, multiple dogs. Do you how as something to think about? How many of the birds do you think ran before we we saw them, right? I, I'm almost thinking every bird had a good run in it before we had a real good encounter with the bird. Yeah, I didn't I don't think I like had you know, maybe one or two of them hands that when I was off off by myself away from you guys that I got good solid points out of mm-hmm. Jesse with. Them might have been nested birds that were down in nest, but other than that. I can't think of one that was a nested bird that I went out and flushed. Everything else was on the hoof, on the run. Yeah. Even the homes, you know. Even trying to walk quietly. Nobody could walk quietly in that. You're not going to. No, and you could probably have heard us at 100 yards away if you you had some honed instincts to stay alive in there. You knew where we were long before we hit the field hard. Yeah. But, and that, that speaks well to the the instincts of the birds though too but uh kind of going in from there we had talked about this before of course i'm going to mention that over and over again as a phrase what's the best effective way if i wanted to get a bird in the bag to get a michigan wild rooster what's the most effective way to do it take your one dog one guy and go for a walk Start walking until you, you know, in, in, in late season, a fresh snow, you're going to find tracks. You're going to, if there's birds there, there's going to be tracks and you, mm-hmm. you know, you're in the right area. Start hunting that area where you're seeing tracks, pay attention where you're seeing tracks, what's around where you're seeing tracks. Are they in these fragmites? Are they in the goldenrod? Or mm-hmm. is there, is there a reason they're over here? The reason they're over there. Um, really it's as well as just like any other type of, upland hunting it's boots on the ground and start walking that's how i did it yeah. a lot of times i would hear roosters from my tree deer tree stand and go hunt that area the next morning and see what i would find um that's that's how i found birds in michigan i put boots on the ground i've been had boots on the ground since my dad had me hunting at five six years old with him yep now with us with us out there walking around talking bigger group more dogs more guys we kind of went over this before it it, in a way, it hurts your your hunting ability, right? Because, again, we made a pile of noise. There was no way to go quiet through there. 
one guy and one dog can certainly make a lot less noise than four guys. Um, but it does take away a little bit from the fun of the hunt, though, out there walking around by yourself or just with a buddy sometimes, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, there's, there's things I really enjoy about hunting with just me and my dogs, and there's things I really enjoy about hunting with a group of guys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, I could go either way. I really do enjoy just hunting with me and a dog, though. Even even me and two dogs out there sometimes. Sometimes I'll let two run. Most of the time it's just me and one dog, and, and I follow the dog more so than I do anything because they that's what they're bred to do. <laughs> yep, yep. They uh, and it's a totally different game. The etiquette. We'll talk a little bit about the dogs, right? Today today during a youth hunt, I had a certain expectation of my dogs. Now, had I been out there with my dogs hunting a wild bird, there were certain etiquette things that I no longer would consider going to be beneficial to me, you know. And uh, and and the dogs did well today, especially on a, on a pen bird. But thinking about it, what do you want in a wild pheasant dog, especially if you're going to be up up in Michigan? You know, it may be different in another state, but for up here, ideally. What kind of manners do you want the dog to have? Um, you know, just kind of give its overall kind of demeanor and run. Uh, I I really like my dog within 100 yards of me when I'm hunting and that stuff. Because, like you said, the birds are runners. If you get you get a dog 200 yards away, you're probably not getting a shot at that bird. There's, there's a real good chance you're not. So I like, I like a little bit closer dog when you get into thick stuff. Um, similar to like, I like my grouse dogs within a hundred yards when I'm in the grouse woods mm-hmm. and kind of a, you know, I, I hate to say this cause I'm a Nashville guy, but kind of a looser dog. When I'm out pheasant hunting and them dogs are moving, I want to be able to re- release the dog without having to go up and tap it on the head. Like you had to do with Jesse that, you know, when I had your releaser, yep. she's, she's an Astro dog. She's told not to break. And if she breaks, I'm, I lose points. So, um, but for my hunting dogs, I'd rather have a little looser dog. I'd rather have a dog that I can release from a distance to tell the move forward. And if it blows the bird up, so what? It, it helps me at that point. It's a hunting dog. It's not a trial dog. It's nothing trying to be fancy. And what we we trial guys and guys that are really big into it forget a lot is most of these guys don't have a, a day a weekend to go train their dog into the positions that our dogs are at. Mm-hmm. As long as your dog handles, that's the biggest thing is, is handling. Be able to get your dog to come to you when you need to. A dog, get a good dog, wool broke. So when you wool it, that's that's the biggest safety issue of a dog right there. If you wool it, your dog needs to stop. Whether it's running for a bird across a dirt road and a car is coming or whatever the case is, wool is your number one command, I believe, a bird mm-hmm. dog should have. Yep. Other than that, a good nose and hopefully retrieve (laughs) i would i would definitely go for the retrieve part and especially the ones where that bird hits the ground running like we saw i want to i want a dog that specializes in somehow that it's bleeding it's running and it's mine to go get and yeah you know and especially now with the advent of the gps on the dog i kind of know what you're doing already i know i'm not going to lose him but go out there finish the job and uh and bring me back my bird you know? yeah i definitely want a dog that as soon as that bird's flushing i want my dog on that bird i i know a lot of people are are steady to swing and shot and and i'm all for it 
you're a great trainer if you do it. But in my opinion, on a, on a meat dog, it's just not the be beneficial to me. Now, I, I'm, I'm not saying other people don't feel the other way, and I, I, I'm 100% with them. But to me, I want a dog that's on, on foot as soon as that bird's flying. Mm -hmm. Right. We, we know that that bird's getting away from the dog no matter what at that point, too, especially on that flush. It's not like it's going to hover over that dog's nose very long. You know, you're yeah. you're not going to be unsafe shooting that bird. It's going to make some distance up. But uh, yeah, and if you're hunting with a dog and everybody that you're hunting with is proper etiquette, and, and I mean, if you feel safe hunting with them with you, you would think you'd feel safe hunting with them with your dog. But mm -hmm. accidents do happen, and I'm not saying it's never happened to where a dog got shot on a flush or something like that. But that's just what I prefer is steady to flush. Yep, yep. I have heard recently and uh, a friend of mine has a a wife that works in the in the dispatch of a local county and uh it seems that a young man took a few pellets to the head and neck from a buddy at a preserve a couple weeks ago and uh he mentioned it to me in passing at work the other day i'm like yeah that that does happen and that's probably a guy that's off his friends friends that i get to hunt with lists probably is one guy less now after that but uh you know those those occasions at least are still pretty rare and uh, and i think the way they stress safety it gets more rare every year at least that's my hope and the way i see it but it's it's something to to be said for your hunting friends is that i don't get shot my dog doesn't get shot and uh, the nice thing about wild birds is usually they put themselves in a spot where you've got a good chance of not having a dog underneath them very long. They're, they're quick. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, accidents can happen in anything you do. I, I personally have a couple real good buddies that have put pellets in other people. I, I, I know it's happened, especially in the woodcock woods where, where things get shallow. So you, you, you can never be too careful the way, the way I always see it, the way it is. If I don't know. I don't shoot. Mm -hmm. If I don't know where the guy is that's next to me is, I'm not shooting. If bird's not, if, if I don't think, if I think my dog can get at that bird, I'm not shooting. No, no bird's worth a dog and no bird's worth a buddy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And at the same time, that unknown, you know, there's people have come up with a lot of creative ways of either keeping a line, making sure they know where everybody is. You know, they all have kind of either some sort of mannerisms in the woods. I know we do it for grouse. We do it for other things too, about where's my guy, where's my wingman. You know, we kind of know where the dogs are and we only shoot birds that come up off the ground a ways, but, uh, there's, there's more than a handful of techniques on, on how to know where all your people are and know where your, your lines of fire are best. But, uh, that is something we should always, of course, keep in mind, uh, with that. Um, Again, I mentioned earlier, of course, that I was not carrying my gun. I didn't buy the stamp. I haven't yet. And I, I'm far enough west in the state where I probably won't actually buy it until they come up with a better idea. But uh, I blame it on Travis Powers and uh, Adam Wilson. Adam Wilson, yeah. It's their fault. I wasn't buying it. I was sticking with you guys, but. I thought they were hunting and I wasn't, so I had to go. <laughs> I'm happy I did. Now I it was it was a pretty good year for birds, and like I told you, I went uh, 
New Year's Day. Yeah. Went. Should have had my limit. Made an easy miss on an easy shot and got another bird. Ended up with one bird and seen a few birds and had a good day. That was a day with just me and my dog, and I got a nice bunch of good points, solid points on the dogs. We didn't have no snow that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, it was good. Good end of the last day of the season. That's good to know that the birds are still. There's another rooster that made it through. I missed him. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and that's you don't need a lot of roosters, right, for for a number of hens out there. So you left one for seed. You can feel like you're a conservationist at heart now. Yeah, yep, yep. That's what I thought as he was flying away. At least it's good to see you make it till next year. Yep. And and it looks as we're so far into the winter. I mean, we're we're a week into January and we're having a pretty pretty easy winter so far. So if it stays this way, we're gonna have another good year. Good. Mm-hmm. Depending on spring, you know yep. how spring goes, but so far it's looking pretty promising. I think. I want to contrast something about the cover. And, of course, we're being pretty specific about the covers we were in. So this is a a local anecdotal observations of ours. But we had talked about this while we were hunting. We're mid-December, late December, and, you know, it was, I think, just after Christmas, wasn't it? And the same field, had you walked that field on opening day, what were your chances of knowing how many birds were in there really and how oh, long could man. you possibly have lasted when that stuff was all still vertical? I I will go out there in early season, but nobody will go with me, I'll tell you that. Nobody wants to walk in there. I'll go out there, and I'm lucky to find a bird or two. It's mm-hmm. just so the dogs are, I mean, you're in there for a half hour, and your dog's beat. you got to go put that dog away and go grab another dog. Mm-hmm. Um, it's thick. It's, it's bad. I can... I can only imagine the fragmites in there were reminiscent of about those five and six year aspen cuts that I would like to find woodcock in, except they're a little denser. On top of that, all those four and five foot high weeds that had all folded over and made such great cover in December would be vertical and still throwing pollen and seeds on everything down there. And then what do you do? Your your dog's at the bottom of all that, hot. It's still, you know, even if it's not a hot day, no air is moving down in there, and their nose is getting full of everything falling off those plants. You know, yeah, one or two birds instead of two dozen is a huge difference in in a hunter's observations or in what he thinks of the state land. You know, had I been out there opening day and just been miserable, I would think that the piece of ground was worthless. Great-looking habitat and not a thing in here. This is dumb. Day after Christmas... 24 hens, handful of roosters, totally, totally different scenario. The landscape looked different. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a lot of the thing too is Michigan's, Michigan's pheasant seasons and everything Michigan pheasant, they haven't touched a thing to do with their seasons or nothing since we had birds, Mm -hmm. you know, they dropped, they dropped the limit of bird is all they did. They dropped it from three birds to two birds. But our seasons, we've still got two week, two weeks in October, right? And then we got two, four. Well, three weeks. Goes yeah. four three, weeks. three kind of. Three to, two to four, it's what? It's October 20th to November 14th. Yeah. So we have that season, and then we have the month of late season, which I I, I do like the seasons. I, I don't think that needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. But I just think that maybe 
maybe pheasants need to be looked at a little more. How can we improve our season? Maybe, maybe do we shorten one or two of the season or, and I hate, as a hunter, I hate to say shorten seasons because I, I, I love to be out there as much as I possibly can, but yeah, whatever needs to help help. Maybe we need to look at that more, you know, mm-hmm. I, outside I would, of habitat. I would hate shortening the season only because the, the, my doubt is the ability to lengthen it again if things improve. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's the same thing where if you were to reduce the limit, what's the chances of yeah, you ever getting it put back again to something yeah. else? Yeah. And, and going down to one, one bird a day would just, I, I think it would kill a lot of hunting for many guys. If going pheasant hunting. I'm, I'm probably not going to go hunt much pheasants if I can only get one bird a day, you know, even though, I only usually come home with a bird today, but right. Um, it might I just be. I, I don't think that's the fix. I think the fix is habitat. Obviously, it needs mm-hmm. to happen. Yep. And we don't have trapping like we used to have that that takes care of predators. So, but yep. we got a lot of guys that are now coyote hunting, and that's a huge, huge benefit. Yep the 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 thing I had heard recently again. I've been of course I always try to listen. Uh, to people smarter than me when it comes to a lot of these topics, mainly because I can learn so much by listening to somebody who spent thousands of dollars on degrees and studies and it's part of their job. Uh, the, the predator portion is one of those unique things where at the very local small level, it helps. And then they said, well, in the bigger landscape level, it doesn't because there's always a spot that you're going to get those predators, nest raiders coming back to you know, from areas you can't get trapping in and you can't go shoot coyotes in. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, we shouldn't do it. That just means that that local area, whether it's on my 20 acres here or in a certain state game area or a certain parcel there, you take out take out a few raccoons or you take out a couple of coyotes or somebody finally gets that fox they always wanted. That helps that season. That helps some nests survive. Um, maybe it's not so much a longer-lasting effect, but that immediate little boost that trapping gives us uh, can make a lot of difference right there when you start to think about whether it's uh, the grouse further north or pheasants here or anything else. The mortality rate on a prey species, especially when there's still chicks, can be very high. And if you can, if you can reduce that even a little bit, you know, you have a dozen chicks in a nest. Save one extra nest is a dozen extra chicks. You may only get four that make it to adulthood, but that's that's going to make a difference locally, you know, in that one or two years. And then, of course, if you keep it up, it, it works long term. Um, but you do have to keep up on it. But yeah, there's there's something to be said for that. And if you want to trap, it's hard to not be successful. I think now when it comes to the nest raiders and things of that nature. Yeah, I got, so I talk about Iowa quite a bit because I got family out there and I go out there and hunt quite a bit. But I got two cousins that moved out there from Michigan, went out there to become linemen because they couldn't get their apprenticeship in here at the time. Mm-hmm. They never came back. They, they picked up a bunch of hunting land they leased and yeah. became trappers when they moved out there. They trap so many coyotes and, and it you it shows because I go out there and I pheasant hunt the land they deer hunt. Yep. And they have birds and birds and birds galore. But they, I mean, every single night they're getting a coyote off of one of their pieces of land. They're, and it's year-round that they're they're getting some kind of predators off their land. Yep. 
and it shows and, and in that area we were hunting back when i was big into deer hunting now this is probably 10 15 years ago there was a guy that trapped all that and i i haven't walked the land like i used to to tell you that he's still trapping in there and I haven't seen it trap on any of the ditch lines in a while. But, yeah, there used to be a guy that was he was yeah. pretty religious at the trapping in there. We didn't, He'd get a lot of the out of there. Yeah, we didn't see a lot of tracks, though, right? We're walking through the snow. We're not seeing a abundance of predator tracks either, right? I don't, I don't remember or have any recollection of where, man, there's an awful lot of coyote tracks through here. It seemed pretty yeah, sparse, well, actually. And there's – but – in that area, there are a lot of guys that run coyote dogs. I was telling you, yeah. I've, I've been up there. I camp up there, and I, I hear the guys running the coyote dogs at night and stuff. Yep. So them guys are a huge benefit to us. The predator hunters, more power to you guys. I, I'd like to join you someday. <laughs> There's a, there are a few things that would be fun, and, and I come from a family that ran hounds and still runs hounds. But uh, trying something besides rabbit hunting with beagles, another hound chase to do there's a thrill in hounds that it's hard to duplicate even with pointing dogs hounds are are a special thing but uh maybe one of these days i'll finally get that but until... yeah I, my uncle used to do the coon hound thing and i used to love going as a kid but i haven't gone in in probably 30 years mm-hmm. yep so one of the things we, we talked about, and we'll we'll try to keep it a little more brief on this one, is, of course, I didn't buy the stamp. You did buy the stamp because you finally folded when jealousy got the better of you, for lack of probably a better way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a beautiful morning. I woke up, and there was snow on the ground, and I was thinking, you know, I could be hunting right now. I'm going hunting right now, and I'm hunting. Yeah. And I don't, I don't blame you too. If I lived anywhere near where you guys are, I'd probably have bought it. It's easy for me to hold out being, I drove almost two full hours. No, I drove more than two hours to get to you guys. You drove the whole way in the snow yeah. on the way there, didn't you? Yeah, the first half was kind of snowy and slippery, and after that it was just cold, and, and the truck's fine with cold. But, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the release uh, the release program as well, the MPHI, which we both, we don't like the idea the way it sits now is probably the best way to describe it. Um, of course, I was involved in a recruitment event today um, because because we still agree recruitment is important. Um, from a hunter's perspective, what are some fair criticisms and maybe if there's some fair praise as well um, I know you're not a fan, so fair praise is going to be a legitimate praise then at that point. But what about that do you think is good and bad? We'll just kind of do some pros and cons. Uh, I'll start with the pros just because I'm, I want to start with the good on it. Good thing is it's really hard to find a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> They, good thing is that they are getting if 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 they put it in the right areas, they will get the people that you want to recruit to come out and kill birds. But it 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 can't be just for the guy like you or I that has a good bird dog, mm-hmm. knows how to go hunt, and it's just going to go in and sh- shoot his limit in a half hour, take his buddy there, shoot his limit, et cetera, et cetera. If, if you really need it for new recruitment, we somehow need to, to manage these sites, I believe. 
and I believe we need to get them toward more more uh, urban areas that we're that we're trying to promote it to. Right. The prime example we had is Rose Lake is one of the release sites. Within a half an hour of Greater Lansing, what a what a perfect place to recruit, right? You know, that would be like having a gem site down there that actually had birds. You know, you can you can point to the list and say, we put birds here, it's nearby. You can really reach a lot of people to give pheasant hunting a try. That was one of the pros that we came up with right away was, this is going to be the best the best route, really, as, as far as the program goes. Now, I'm disappointed Grand Rapids didn't have a site anywhere near it. A huge yeah, metropolitan I, area like that. I I think the aspect of the west side of the Michigan. I think I think in general, not only in the release program, but in pheasants in general in Michigan, the west side of the state just gets put on a back burner. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a shame, you know. We we focus on one area of the state, and and nobody else gets involved in the other areas of the state. Yep, yep. and it's. But that's kind of the way it is, too. Our landowners view things a little differently, right? Just just drive from the east to the west and back again. And just if you just oh, yeah, observe yeah. something a little bit, there's a huge difference. Yeah. Yep. And it's, it's not to say we don't have pockets of birds. I know guys that have landowner permission that they can still go get a limit here and there. But that's just, it's literally one or two landowners and some CRP keeping a pocket of birds alive. Um, and thankfully on private land where they regulate the pressure, the guys know not to gun it too hard. And so we still have those birds available, but like our, our state land even doesn't have the huge amounts of grass that it really takes and the, the cattails, the fragmites, the, all the stuff that we had to crash through isn't over here. We have a lot of autumn olive, a lot of brush, um, which gets us a little bit, of course, we're going to transition into some habitat talk again and how to fix some of these things. Um, one of the things, though, with the program, of course, we, we said, we'll recap it, we, we said got right, a big area near a major metropolitan area where we, we as hunters or we as the DNR would say, there are birds here, there's an opportunity to succeed, by all means, go try it. Where we got it wrong is the next part. Yeah, we we release on sites with wild birds already in habitat, and that is a that is not was not good whatsoever to the mm -hmm. population. Yep. Um, one, one site in particular, the season prior, the last day of season, I moved over thirty pheasants. That season, I moved two pheasants. The last day of season. Um. Mm -hmm. You just can't you can't put two hundred guys on a piece a eighty acre piece of land and expect the birds that are there to live on that land, especially with, with the pressure. I, the hens aren't going to live there along with the roosters. It's it's just not going to happen. Yep, yep. And and part of our observations, of course, the best habitat out there was these state land pieces we hunted. If you crash them flat, where do they go? Right? Where do I stay warm in February? when all those extra footsteps happened in December. Um, and we see that a little bit with our gem sites. The, the thing about the gems that I like is even if you trample it flat, there's, there's habitat surrounding 
where the birds come back every year and that opportunity renews itself, which wild birds renew their own opportunity, right? They're, the only money you need really is some investment into the habitat to get a perpetuating sort of uh, opportunity is a good word for it, really. And so, you know, we've talked about this, of course. We, we talked for, what, close to two hours plus plus breakfast. And, uh, yeah, yeah that, that ability, like you were saying, you know, the wild birds – when they got pushed out of there, and I've talked to this with a previous episode with Ben Beeman about this too, you're pushing those birds out of that state land where we have prime habitat into a subprime habitat and then telling them to live there. That's what the pressure does. Um, red tails love subprime habitat. For, yep. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you've seen it. There's... Outside of the state land there, there's there's another one other grass field that's private. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it's all crop fields. So if they're pushed out of there, they got no chance. Yep. They have a small fence row that's easily hunted because there's still trees in that fence row, right? Those are hawk perches. They're not even trees. They're just ambush yep. points for a predator. Um, and that's, yeah. And, and we still, I like the idea of having both. We talked about having both av- available, right? that that guaranteed renewing of the opportunity uh, just like we had today with a youth hunt we guarantee there's an opportunity here today the next step for some of these kids is real hunting you know that was that was what we were working to um, with a youth day the same thing with the release program is now that we have you interested it's time to take the next big step so, so my only other thought on this is is on how they could how how you control it, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you make sure new hunters are taking advantage of it? And it's just not every guy. And and I almost, you know, I thought to myself the one day I'm thinking, man, I bet the state could take take a funding at a preserve and just do state funded DNR hunt for for beginning hunters. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. At the preserve, give this give this funding to local preserve businesses. And keep it, it. It would take all the all the work away from the DNR to local businesses and guarantee it's going to the right hands. You know what I mean? And not not utilizing killing wildlife habitat. But I'm sure there's huge stipulations to that in other ways. But but there's got to be. It's just got to be thought out better. Every mm-hmm. every bit of it's got to be thought out better. We we can't just say okay, we're going to do it and we're going to release it on lands that we know nothing about. We're not going to even go walk the land before we put it on it to see what we're going to kill, what kind of population or habitat we're going to destroy. Yep. And if you had and walked, had you walked that the opening week, you wouldn't have thought those birds were there either. So in a way, you're asking the biologist and you're asking uh, the people in charge of our our resources to not only do you have to know what's on your properties in October, you got to know what's in there at Christmas too, you know, and, and that doesn't come with emails that comes with, of course, boots on the ground. That's, that's the job where as the biologist, you get your feet dirty, your hands dirty, you know, and know what you're dealing with there. And, and, you know, and the same thing though, your input as a hunter mattered all of a sudden too. We, we talked that, you know, part of, part of where it should go is, if we talk to our own DNR biologists, how much better for that biologist, right? You save that guy or that, that biologist, how much, how much of a trip can you save them 
by just texting them or talking to them here and there just with how good they're doing, when it's good, or how maybe it should be improved because you've noticed something, right? You know, you could be like, you're really the forward person involved because you're the eyes and ears of, of maybe an entire organization. Yeah, don't don't ever if, if you if you're on a piece of state land and and you kind of call that your home piece of state land and you put a lot of work and, and a lot of boot leather into that piece of land, don't be afraid to call that biologist and tell them what you see because it 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 works and it helps. I I believe our biologist here is Tammy, right? That's who I talk to is Tammy mm-hmm. all the time. And, um, she has from day one she got thrown into the release program as soon as she got hired and took over our that area and uh from day one she has been super super able to work with i guess not work with me but takes every bit of information you give her and puts it to use Mm -hmm. i guess that's the way to say it everything everything you tell her about the land every everything about what kind of covers they're in everything she she actually takes the information you give her and she moves forward with it she moves forward works with Rough Grouse Society, and and she's been working with Pheasants Forever as well out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's doing a great job over here. I I got to give her, you know, props. Yeah. She's doing a really good job over here. Yep, yep. Same like I always. I may sound like a broken record. I always champion our forestry department. The better they're doing, and they've been doing, I think, rather well. The better my future looks. My dogs are going to be happy until they retire because. You know, I drive north and forestry department's been on a roll. But, you know, yeah, it's nice to hear about the biologists, too. And southern Michigan should be a focus of our work. Um, And some of the uniqueness of that property, not only, we had talked about this, you shot woodcock in that same piece of property we hunted. Yep, yep. Same same fence rows right there. I shot woodcock. not the exact same piece of property, but in that same SGA, I've shot grouse out of there, and, and you can go in there and move grouse as it is. Um, not going to move numbers like you move in the northern Michigan mm-hmm. parts, but you're still going to move a few. Yep. Uh, the deer habitat in there is, is pretty wild. There's a lot of deer. The only easy walking was on those 18-inch wide deer runs. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's... But thinking about the everything, habitat. Everything likes grass. Yeah. Everything. Oh, yeah. You know, my, my time I spent living in South Dakota as a guide, uh, that proved to me right there, everything likes grass. Everything in there from from skunks to mm-hmm. white-tailed deer, mule deer, everything out there is in the grass. Yep. We used to, we used to have to pull deer antlers out of combine track tires out there. We used to combine the switch grass. The deer antlers would stab through the tires. Ooh, those are expensive tires. Oh, they are. Yep. Well, and in in thinking about that too, right? There were areas in there that were wetland, right? Fragmites don't live on on dry plains areas. Fragmites live in water, and so it would be conceivable on a year that had some rain in the fall, you could walk into that with a chance of a rooster, a woodcock. You could jump shoot a duck because those those waterways that we were on the edges of uh, that had the good habitat there, you could easily come out of there with multiple species across multiple spectrums of, of feathered animal. On top of that, then, go down the road a little ways to where somebody's done some cutting, and in the brush and in the regenerative forest, 
come out of it with a grouse flush or two, you could have a heck of a varied day. They uh, they actually have done quite a bit of cutting on that piece of state land in there when you get into the wooded sections. Um, there's, yeah, there. I've had days where I've come out with a rooster and a grouse, and I've had a day I've day I came out with rooster and woodcock limit. I've never never got out there and got one of each. That's what I've always tried for was a rooster, a woodcock, and a grouse. I never put that together. Yep. I usually spend too much time trying to get the rooster limit before I go to the other two. And... <laughs> yep, that uh, that kind of brings us to the the lessons to move forward with a little bit here, and that is with the the way habitat is going. Right, we talked in the in our our pre-talk is of course what it was now. What do we as hunters do? How do we get involved? when we look at an ideal piece of state land that does have enough variety to host a woodcock during migration, to hold grouse year round, cause we know they don't migrate, to also have multiple dozens of pheasants on one chunk of property as well, right? We would like to think that this is all an accident and then we know it's not true. That's not an accident. What's the, the, the best way moving forward right what is that we got we got a clear cut cut brush make uh make as we you call it dual habitat mm-hmm. so if we can incorporate our woodcock and our pheasant habitat together uh i think that's that's the best way you know yep it, it work together but as we're already doing right now is starting to see pheasants forever and rough grouse society kind of work together on pieces and, and do dual habitats. So we're covering the woodcock and the grouse together and, or the, or I'm sorry, the woodcock and the grouse or the wood grouse and the, or, saying this all wrong. Woodcock wood, and the grouse or woodcock the woodcock and, and pheasant. Stuff. Yeah, the yeah. woodcock and the pheasant. And this was something that we've, I've heard some talk about already. And it was, I don't even think that they were connected at the time. Travis and John from RGS have already done one project, which, which was a great project over multiple SGAs where we were taking the special mulching machine, which one day I want to steal and joyride for a few days, cutting back the brush that was in some of the spots I went and looked. It was an old farm field that, of course, was now on state land, and the brush had pushed its way almost to the center of them. And so they mulched the brush back and gave us where the big woods was about a 10-yard buffer of brush again and then went back to flat grassland in the middle there until the woody stems come back again without realizing it then i talked to to ben at pheasants forever and they want to do some of the same projects because they want to regenerate the brush that thick low-growing brush is good wintering habitat for pheasants well it matches really nice with our work with trying to enhance the dancing grounds of spring woodcock and and giving them that habitat for one the spring migration north but as well coming back south again having those brushy edges for cover in grassy areas where they can get to their invertebrates it makes it even better if there's a few puddles in there with some mud so that they really get their food but having two different organizations with totally different focuses both essentially using the same machine that's an ideal thing for the habitats we were hunting near 
as well as a lot of southern Michigan, right? There's autumn olive in a lot of West Michigan's uh, SGAs. You don't want to always take it all out, but mow it back again, get stuff regenerative. Part of part of we talked about reforestation. When was the last time we pushed back on the forest a little bit to give back the grasslands that have kind of been, well, it's not really a deteriorating, but it's certainly a decreasing. Yeah, definitely. It's 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 growing. That's what it's doing. It's growing. You know, we're not we're not out there like our ancestors were chopping everything down for firewood and and everything else. So it's just growing back to what it was. Yep. Yep. And along the way, then we lose. That's the trouble with state land, really. They're not. They're a big chunk, but they're not a big percentage of the land around them you got to make the most of what you have there on what is now a limited budget but yeah the that pushing back of the brush that cutting back of the trees you know there's i would kind of be curious what pheasants would do with a clear cut even just an aspen cut you know that's got to be thick enough when it's young yeah i They'll live in it. There's some grassy bottom, you know, they'll live in it. Yep. Yep. I've seen some further north where there's grassy meadows in the middle of clear cuts. And once you take those trees out, that grass really grows. You get pockets of grass. Of course, we always hunt those edges. You know, those are good for woodcock further north. Mm-hmm. You got to you gotta have some of the same things in the south, of course. Getting a hold of your biologist sure helps. And uh, some good news on that front is that project we had already done is now going to get a round two and hopefully some, some serious money this time, you know, well, it was serious money. Every bit of habitat money is serious, Um, but there's, there's a chance of doing a lot more good in the future in Southern Michigan. Um, One of those things too is talk with the guys around you and, and get involved, right? You know, we're, we're talking about what we experienced. Um, how do how do we make it better, right? That's that's been kind of the, the trick now is we we know it can still be really good. How do we how do we keep it that way? Yeah, you gotta you gotta help. I guess you gotta help out because the funding ain't there for the DNR to do it without our help. So we kind of gotta help out if you can. If you got a weekend where they're doing a rough grouse society's doing a clear cut or a tree plant or same with pheasants forever, and you can get there and help out, man, every hand in the, every hand in the field helps out. Yep. Yep. I've been to a few of the projects up North that, that grouse society did. And, uh, a lot of it was enhancements, adding food to existing cover, you know, with, with pheasants forever, there's. There's got to be projects. I know MUCC even does some projects as well. Um, one of the big things I'll add is when they advertise that they have a raffle going, buy a ticket. There's, there's been, uh, and if you listen to enough of these podcasts, 500 bucks an acre will restore, is a light restoration of one acre of grassland. That's getting some of the brush out. If you got to spray it, if you have to disc it, you're going to need a tractor. 500 bucks per acre. 
And that was kind of the baseline that, that we had determined. If it's really heavily forested, it was closer to 1,500 and, and, and a lot of serious work. But when you start to think about it, every time you buy one of those gun of the year raffle tickets or you go buy a wingspan worth of tickets at a banquet, if you think about it in terms of, hey, I'm, I'm simply purchasing four gallons of diesel fuel that keeps a tractor running, that keeps another bag of CRP qualified seed in the hopper of that, that machine, every little bit of those things does make a big difference because that state land we were on didn't get there by accident. You know, we had 10 years of restoration initiative. Let's crush a myth that I hear all the time too, is if you, if you donate to, let's just say Macomb County pheasants forever or whatever your chapter is over there. If you, if you donate and you buy tickets from that chapter, your money's not going to the, to the national pheasants forever your money stays in chapter and house what what goes to national is your your uh yearly membership that a portion a good portion of that has to go to national but everything when they're having their banquet and you're having a gun raffle or or you're going to the wild game dinner all that stays in state and it, it might not stay in macomb county per se if you're macomb county pheasants forever but it's going to stay in your eight your your state most likely it's going to stay in a near SGA close to it's, that that county or that yeah. chapter it uh from my experience besides the national dues that you would pay for your membership your whatever chapter event that is they keep the rest of that money and it sits in an account ready to be used and it, they can cut that check and say Say Clinton County has a project. Macomb could donate to the Clinton County project uh, with no problem at all, right? Just they control their money. And so being involved with a group like like PF with Pheasants Forever, yeah, when you go to that banquet and you decide to spend four bills on something you really didn't really need anyway, but you bought all those tickets, That's that money stays. That money is Michigan money. That's your chapter's money. Some of it goes to a youth hunt like I did today. It could go to a Habitat Day. It could go to, um, you know, another good thing they do is they have some youth introduction trailers. In those trailers are BB guns. In those trailers might be some other equipment where they go to a state park with a volunteer and they set up a BB gun range in this trailer, introducing kids to BB guns, introducing kids to uh, the value of of grasslands, the value of what pollinators bring because pollinators are such an important part of the life cycle of that pheasant chick, which really, if it's a pheasant chick, a a bluebird chick, or a tree swallow chick, or or a warbler chick, it doesn't matter. They, They all live in the same home, and at that point, your money sticks around if you have a, a chapter that loves to be active, they're going to make a difference. Uh, with a lot of that money and they really can and especially if you want to get involved there's no one turns away volunteers at a meeting when you show up and you're interested you're kind of stuck if you keep showing up you're going to get a job you're going to get involved 
Yeah, we're kind of a dying breed, so if you want to do it, they're, they'll take you aboard. Yep. Um, Travis Powers, that, that guy is putting it in for Rough Grouse Society in, in our area for sure. He's yep. He was definitely putting in the work. So, Yep, and that's a lot of that woodcock. I think it was his determination alone that got that project started. Next thing yeah, you he, know, we've got somewhere close to $60,000 worth of work going on, and that was that was a huge benefit really and uh, and he's still motivated right he's all he was was i think encouraged by round 1 is how i think he's going to think about it now like oh it worked well let's yeah. let's do it again with 2 years worth of planning and see how big yep. we can make it you know yeah yeah and that's he's all right he's all right guy except for that red setter with the bow tie he hunts with all the time <laughs> i need uh, to I need to get a tie like that dog. I, yeah. <laughs> I have a camo bow tie for duck hunting, but I don't quite have the class of devil dog yet. But Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's pretty classy. Yep. I'll have hey, to... what, though, then he kills some birds. He does kill some grouse. Yep, he does. And, uh, you know, that's that's an example of one passionate person making a huge difference. You know, if if by his example or by us talking about him, maybe somebody else decides to come in and be that second person that just makes the work that much easier too. Right. And and we're talking about the vital Southern Michigan zones that really, really does need more motivated people. Um, there's, there's, you can't say it enough that we need more motivated people and a chapter that wants to do something. Absolutely. I mean, we can all sit back and say, well, there's no birds or there's no this, but man, if you get out and you work for it, there's going to be, there's going to be some habitat and you're going to, you're going to have some birds. You're going to have, you're going to know where it's at. You're, you know, it's, I don't know if the way I see it, if you want something, you work for it. And I think that's at, we're at that point where if we want to have pheasant hunting in Michigan or, or good woodcock hunting, grouse hunting, whatever it is, Mm -hmm guys like you or I or or the guy sitting on his couch listening to this right now are the guys that are going to have to put in the work because it's it's just at that point yeah yep and it's you know the the funding of course being reduced it seems like every year right it's all licensed sales driven if we lose two percent of hunters a year think of it as a budget decrease of two percent a year well you can you're going to do less work now with inflation you're going to do a lot less work than people expect you to do or they want you to do well the solution isn't going to be try to figure out how to give the dnr more money it's going to be what can we do to come in there and say we we have some funds we're motivated we're we know what's in a way sometimes i can't say we know what's best right you're talking to a biologist who could very Mm -hmm. well be every bit as knowledgeable and passionate about healthy healthy state land as anyone else yeah i i think our better technique on that is go in and and we have funding we have equipment and we have manpower you tell us what you want and what's best Mm -hmm. or let's 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 work together and figure out what's best and give you make make what's best you know yep how can can we enable this person yep and and the unfortunate thing is is our michigan dnr and our biologists man they they switch hands like crazy and they go through them here and there so mm-hmm. you're not not every biologist you get like tammy tammy was thrown in she she was hired 
put in that that area and tell me where we're putting birds. She she didn't have a chance to even walk the land before she was told where where they could have a release site at that point. So um, a lot of it is you know you you we may at sometimes know that land and what what could be better for it and and as long as they're willing to like they are work with us and, and agree that this is better and, and let's do this and and give us the land to do it hey i think we could we could really come up with quite a bit of funding quite a bit of ability to mm -hmm. to cut whatever we need to cut and and make as many many areas as we can possibly make is what the is what they'll give us basically we'll yep. cut what you'll give us yeah and uh with that in a way since we talked first, right, you had already started something. I don't know how much of it's, none of it will be official yet, right? Have you, what's already started now in that area where you're hunting? Because after we talked, you had started making contact again. Uh, so, so basically I just, an area that, that Travis and I are going to go walk over and, and look at doing it. So this area that I used to hunt, I'm going to say 10 years ago, I used to do real well. I'd kill some pheasants out of the grass field in the middle. You'd get the woodcock on the perimeter of the field, and then there's a, a chunk of woods on the backside that would have some grouse. The problem is the whole grass field grew into briars, and now the pheasants aren't in the briars. The woodcock don't dance in the field, so the woodcock aren't on the edge of the field no more. But if we go in there, we, cl we clear-cut that field, get it back down to a grass field, I believe it'll all come right back to where it was. But mm -hmm. we'll see, you know. It, we, we can preach habitat, and, you know, the, the, a lot of guys that will say, well, we, we gave habitat here, we gave habitat there, and the birds never came. Well, no, they're not just going to magically appear there, right? So so if you have a an area that's got a good little batch of birds, let's let's just use Verona example. They, that's known Michigan's pheasant capital of Michigan, Verona, right? And then you had an area of, of a good amount of birds, and you slowly move that grass out. Now you offer CRP program to the farmers for whatever their land makes them an acre. You can't expect a farmer to sign into a 10 year deal of 10 acres of CRP for $110 an acre. If he's making 300 off the land, no, no farmer in his right mind is going to do that. Yep. You know what I mean? So that's, that's where funding basically, I think that program somehow the state needs to come up with, focus their funding on that and let the funding of the habitat restoration go toward groups like rough grouse society, pheasants forever. Um, because you're, you're never gonna, you're never gonna have pheasants in West Michigan if there were, there's no pheasants there to, to come there. You know what I mean? So yeah. you kind of gotta, you gotta get a, come from somewhere and expand out. Yep, that's, that's the importance we call it of connective cover. If yes. there's nowhere to migrate from, you can do everything you want and it's not going to work. So I think part of that they do out West as well. And they were saying with the sage grouse is let's focus on where they still are and push our work out from the stronghold of where the birds are for the same reason, really it's, it's no use to do it where they aren't, but getting them connected. Right. And that's why those pockets that I, that I know people know of um, on private land that have birds yet that's why the state land stuff still will work somewhere nearby. There's a farmer who retired with 200 acres of grass and brush and a couple of lowland wetland swales. Something's in there still, you know, he knows they're out there. He can he hears them cackling in the spring. 
if you did your work on the state land, they'll migrate. Um, and that's the good part about it, right? As long as we can kind of connect these bits and pieces, the birds the birds do come back. There are very prey species are resilient. You, they've they've not been stamped out over centuries of predator prey relationship. They're they're gonna make it if you give them anything to survive with. And yeah, that's that really is the biggest deal right there is give them a chance to to survive. Yeah, I. You know, I don't know the percentage, and maybe you know, but what what the percentage of what a hunter takes of pheasants in Michigan compared to the predators that take pheasants in Michigan, I I can't we, I can't imagine anybody really would know that number, but we can't put a near a herd of what the predators do to them yeah. because of not having enough habitat to to stay safe. I was I was presented with a rough grouse example of the same thing, and it was a pair of goshawks had been studied in grouse habitat of having taken 200 birds for a year for a year that's a pair yeah. of goshawks hunters are not going to do that kind of damage we're not that good of a predator no, it doesn't matter no. how many guns it doesn't matter what kind of dog it doesn't matter if you use poison and nets you're not as good as a natural yeah, predator. We were just having this conversation earlier. As much as I train my dogs, I need to train myself, you know? Yeah. That's that's the thing. Yep. It it doesn't matter whose fancy gun, and I love fancy guns, right? You will never be as good as a bird of prey that has been specialized over millennia to catch that bird. Yeah. And, and that's why when they, they call it compensatory mortality, the bird we take means that that goshawk gets one less they're not starving they won't starve right that red tail that that hovers over that grassland isn't going to starve but he may pounce on something other than a pheasant because you shot one extra maybe he's still eating that day but the next day he's going to eat another pheasant he's going to eat a <laughs> pheasant you know and if maybe the pheasant population gets too small what it does is it gets to a point and that's why they call it compensatory it's it's just compensation when the when the prey species in particular gets down to a certain level all the predators including humans when we get too few numbers it's not worth the walk in that field anymore to flush one bird so you grab your buddy's beagles and you go rabbit hunt that bird of prey or that fox does the same thing this isn't worth the calories to go find another pheasant i'm going to eat mice until i'm full today and, yeah. and what's left of those pheasants, because they're no longer worth the amount of effort, survive with less predation until their, their population expands again. And being a prey species, nothing, nothing proliferates the way prey species do. It's their job to live and to get eaten. And they do well on both fronts, you know. And so that's, that's why really where... The fox in my backyard gets to live, and I I will never take after that fox. It's a it's a vixen. I hear her every now and then. It sounds like someone being murdered back there in the woods when she starts crying. She gets a few rabbits out of my rabbit thicket, and it's not a big deal. I have a big thicket. If there were too few rabbits, she'd switch prey, just like if there were too few rabbits, I switch prey. In the meantime, we'll both take a few out of the surplus, and that's the same thing with that that big field worth of grass that we walked in is. If those pheasants aren't going to really be there, 
all the predators look for something else. And so it preserves you a remnant there that when you improve the habitat, they come back. Yeah. Yep. Habitat is, uh, I guess like, like we were saying though, if you, if you have little pockets and you know, there's birds there and you can expand on those. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, if, if you've got 20 acres and five acres of it is thicket that that holds nothing but maybe some deer bed down in there, best thing you can do is chop that down and turn it into grass field. Mm-hmm. That's, in, in my opinion, that is the best thing. If you want pheasants, that's the best thing you can do. Yep. And if everybody, everybody that had five acres of land sitting around would let grass grow, man, it would make a world of difference, but you're not going to get that anymore. It's just yep. not going to happen. So we can, yep. we got to get it where we can get it. And even young thicket, I'm noticing that when you get old thicket, if you look, if you take a knee and look down under old thicket, it's bare. Shade gets yeah. everything. Ten foot bushes I mean, turn into a wasteland underneath there again. It, that goes right just, just to like hunting aspens. You don't go out, out and hunt a twenty year old aspen patch you go out there and you hunt a five to ten year old patch you know what i mean yep and it's kind of the same thing with the thicket you don't you, you don't want to go in a old mature thicket you're not going to find much but maybe deer bedding down in there like i just said yeah um a nice young thicket that's where you're going to get rabbits pheasants everything else is yep. going to live in the thicker cover yep yep but uh we keep going back to that we're gonna we could spend all night ranting and raving about improving habitat so we're gonna <clears throat> that cough that has been keeping me from recording has come back and I'm out of I'm done with my old fashioned a little while ago so we're going to finish this up then with two questions and these are a little lighter I already know your answers of course your ideal pheasant gun and shell we'll start with that one uh, I'm all for the 12 gauge with the 5 shot Ideally, I like to try, I told you, I like the Remington Express long ranges, but they're real hard to come by anymore. So pretty much I'll take anything that's five shot with high brass in it. Mm-hmm. And the other one is what historic gun would you use and what would you use it on? Uh, my dad had, uh, it's, it's just a cheap piece of junk, Model 37. Uh but my dad had it. That was the first gun I ever shot, and I beat it around, and I can't get my hands on that gun no more. So if I could ever shoot shoot another gun, it'd be that gun at another pheasant. <laughs> yep. And that's that's one of those things, too. You know, I, some of these guys have mentioned some really, really expensive guns that are more or less museum pieces now. Um, and, and it's strange the way we value a gun, right? There's... You mentioned a Model 37 Ithaca, which really for the longest time was a $350 gun you could find on just about any used rack somewhere. And they're they're a nice handling, cheap, reliable gun. You know, meanwhile... Yeah, that, was, that was the lightweight gun to have you then, you know? That was yeah. that was it. Yeah, they're... But, uh... It's it's not much, and it wouldn't ju- it wouldn't couldn't be just any Ithaca 37. You know, it would have to be that gun. Yep, absolutely. I, I, I've tried to chase that gun down, and I can't seem to find it anywhere. Mm. Yep. Awesome. Well, good. On that note, 
I am going to be done and call it an evening for me. But uh, looking over my notes, I think we've covered about everything here, minus a bunch of the rambling. But uh, good. Any any last parting shot that you want to throw out there? No, man, I just appreciate you having me, and uh, hopefully I'll see you doing some habitat projects this spring and summer and do some hunting again in the fall. Yeah, definitely on the hunting, the habitat stuff. I think my role as fundraiser and uh, publicity guy is kind of what I go for. It seems to be what I have a, a knack for doing, and you'll you'll definitely hear from me. We'll be publishing anytime opportunities arise. But, uh, yeah, my, my parting shot is when you see that flyer for a raffle ticket for a gun maybe you don't need, buy two tickets anyway, you know, those – those yeah. chapters really can do a lot with the money when you put a motivated person in there doing it. Yeah, or go to a banquet. Yeah, you know, if you ever have a chance to go to a wild game dinner, go to it. If you haven't been to one, they're a lot of fun. And they don't usually use wild game anymore, though. That's now. It's usually a steak or a chicken option. Yeah, and, you know, and it it is good food. I've had I've had so much fun at banquets. It's not because my wife is lucky and wins things, but. I don't win anything, but, uh, I spend a lot of money and don't ever walk out with a gun, but they're a lot of fun. <laughs> I've been lucky. I have won a couple of guns, but, uh, in the end though, you know, I, I don't go there thinking I'm going to come out ahead. I go out there and I think I'm going to benefit the bird. Of course, that's why we, we talk about the bird. That's why we do all the things we do. It's, it's really for the birds. Um, and on that note, hopefully now we're in the long lull of a season, so the other thing to do and get involved with, this is this is the youth hunt time of year and the banquet time of year, and that's two things that anybody with a bird dog and a little bit of wish to, to volunteer and get involved can do and uh, find that local chapter and and get involved, really. Just find a way to... Yeah, that's not... That's... that's either chapter whether it's rough growth society or pheasants forever they yeah. they both do youth pheasant hunts throughout the state of michigan yep yep and there's it's fun shooting a bird yourself seeing somebody shoot their first bird or their 10th bird there's something cool about watching just a kid grin when you see that they did everything right you heard the safety come off at the right time everything goes perfect and the kid is kind of getting it. At a certain point, you just kind of smile, and you're like, you know, this is really worth it for me. Just, just to see that look on their face. I saw it again today, and it was a hoot. And it's, it's a riot. You know, I, I always say the littlest kids got the biggest emotions because they yep. do. Whether, whether it's because they hit the bird, I've seen, I've had kids cry because they miss the bird. You know, I've. Oh, I've yeah. seen it all, man. It's, it's good to see that their emotions that involved in it that they that they feel that way, and whether whether it's happy or sad, or usually the kid that cries because he missed a bird, I'll take him out there till the end of the day till he puts one down, you know. But yep. But it's just and and every time I do them, you get a return. It's good. I love to see the returning families. If I do one this year and the family comes back next year, and that kid brings a buddy, or yeah, or furthermore, the more the more kids you get involved in at that age, hopefully they continue on to to go get a bird dog and do it more themselves like we do. Yep. Yeah. The thing, 
watching people hit their first bird. I saw that today as well as I saw a couple of young kids, 13-year-old girl, made some very safe decisions that cost her a bird. You know, the, the choice to not shoot all of a sudden turns around and you're like, that's an adult decision. And you made it at 13 years old. I couldn't be more happy. You know, her father was with her and he's looking at her like, yes, you, you chose very well. That's, that's an adult decision. And it was a split second choice. And she's like, no, that, that wasn't safe. I'm not I'm like, wow, this is as a, as a guide, you can't do better than tell me you thought safety first and it, yeah. and it cost her a shot. But how awesome is that? So, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully, I mean, and hopefully we see her again too. I'm, I don't think there were disappointed kids around, at least in the fields where I was. And, uh, yeah. that, you know, there's always a way to look forward to that stuff. So we'll, we'll keep rambling on. And we did this the last time too. We talked and yeah. talked and talked yeah. and talked. So, all right. Well, well, uh, <laughs> we'll chat more off the, off the recorder here another day. Yep. Anyway. And, uh, with that note, I'm going to say cut. <laughs>